From Relay FM, this is Flashback. This season, we're looking back at failed tech products to see what we can learn by studying their demises. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Quinn Nelson. Hey, Stephen. How you doing? Doing pretty well. Just, uh, you know, going to learn about spinning mirrors and games with no operating systems that they came on the CD. What are we doing today? Yeah, we are talking about some crazy game consoles. Now, I it's my understanding that you are an avid gamer. That's, um, what's the opposite of being true? <laughs> not true. A, a not avid gamer. Not an avid gamer. Oh, I, I own a Switch. Okay. All right. That's good. Basically a Mario Kart machine and then my sons play Pokemon on it. So, you know, we got, we got the Switch in there. We had a Wii for a long time, so. Oh, there you go. That's good. Yeah. So that, that's two, you know. I, I don't, uh, I'm not, not a huge gamer. What about you? Are you a big, you're a video, you're a video gamer kind of guy, right? Like you got the LEDs and the, the VR. I am a video gamer kind of guy. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a young gun. I grew up around the block with the games. So I have wow. a, I have a PlayStation. I have multiple gaming PCs. I've just recently gotten into recently as in the last year into real pc games like keyboard and mouse kind of guy i was always a controller console playstation and xbox kid growing up and, and now i'm a pc guy um and yeah i have i have multiple vr headsets and i'm so yeah i guess you could say i don't know that i'm a gamer because i don't feel like I, I play frequently and i'm good enough to be called one but i definitely enjoy video games we've never sounded cooler <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if people have made it to episode five, they already know the truth. So, <laughs> okay, so, okay. So, I know a little bit about gaming. I know that Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo basically rule the roost. They're they're the go to players, right? Right, right. Uh, and then there's Apple, right? You game on your Mac, of course. Mm. <laughs> you don't. Oh, okay. This is news to me. Uh, uh, no, Mac gaming. It's going to take off any day. Yeah, well, I mean, there's the chess game that's included in every copy of Mac OS. So. That's true. It's been there a long time. Yeah. We're actually going to start with Apple, and we're going to okay. start with the Pippin. The what now? The, the Pippin. You know, everyone's favorite Apple co- video game console. <laughs> <laughs> well, Apple's probably only video game console. Well, you know, they had an iPod Touch uh, ad for a while that was called it the funnest iPod, right? There was a, There was a minute there where the iPod Touch was like... A pretty big mobile gaming deal. And there's lots of phone and iPad games. But this is from weird 90s Apple, which is my my favorite. The company at this point, right, mid-90s, shipping pretty bad computers with an aging operating system and investing in a bunch of weird bets. Yeah, so the, the Pippin was one of these weird side bets. It was a Mac-based game console. Apple's intention was to kind of build a platform that third parties could utilize to ship their own consoles. In doing so, Apple thought that it would expand the market share of macOS and then open uh, things up to a new line of revenue, expanding the Mac into new horizons that it hadn't been on before. And this is more than just like reference hardware, right? We hear that term kind of thrown around with like the Google Pixel, right. but this is a little bit different. So Apple would dictate that the core architecture had to remain intact so you could have compatibility across different companies' consoles. So if I had a Pippin console built by company A, and then I came over to your house and you had one built by company B, we could share games, right? They wanted that compatibility. And, and Apple thought that was important, uh, and they thought that licensees, so these companies that would build these, they would have freedom to change the design, you know, add features, better audio, maybe video stuff. But the core of the Pippin experience had to be the same across the board. 
Right. It, it turns out not a lot of companies were hyper interested in this idea. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> in 1993 or so, a Japanese company Bandai approached Apple about building such a device. Uh, and the company was planning to ship a CD-ROM-based console. Now, Bandai was able to supply the case and the packaging, and Apple was the one that repurposed the Mac logic boards and then provided the PowerPC 603 processors that ran at 66 megahertz. Yeah, speedy, right? Mm -hmm. This hardware could theoretically address 64 megabytes of RAM, but there were some poor architecture decisions that limited the systems to 32 megabytes of RAM. Expansion was possible through a PCI riser card at the bottom of the console. So there were like third-party docks that you could like sit the Pippin on top of and you would get things theoretically like floppy drives or wired Ethernet connections. Uh, that one was promised by Apple but never actually shipped. Yeah, and that's because well, things, as we'll learn, kind of fell apart. Out of the box, the Pippins provided both 8-bit and 16-bit color at a resolution of 40p, 640 by 480. Uh, primarily, that was done over VGA, uh, but there was an S-video output and an RCA composite video output. <laughs> I bet that looked not good. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't think so either. Although, interestingly enough, and this is something that is very unusual for consoles of the time, the Pippin models were not region locked, and the switch on the back actually allowed you to switch between your output selection as well as NTSC and PAL, um, which is pretty cool, which allowed the same basic hardware to be sold worldwide. Yeah, it's a big deal. I mean, even today, people still fight with that. Right. It's still an issue. Finally, it's becoming less and less of a thing because, you know, the internet exists and you can find stuff. But... Netflix doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, the, the console shipped with two controllers. They were called, are you ready for this? Apple Jacks. Ah, <laughs> and they were they were not good. Mm -mm. Uh, for those that haven't seen these before, do you do you remember those like boomerang PS3 prototype controllers that were unveiled at E3 years and years ago? Of course, I as a vivid <laughs> and strongly emotioned you really, gamer, you really don't remember those. I don't remember them, but I have an Applejack controller, and it's real bad. It's basically the same thing. Yeah, it, it's uh, there'll be some pictures in the show notes. It is just it's uncomfortable to hold. It looks weird. Uh, it's just what uh, – anyways, sorry. Right. Well, the, the, what makes it so odd is that there's a trackball located in the middle of the controller. <laughs> and that's because a lot of the games that shipped for Pippin were Mac games that didn't get optimized very well. And so you'd have to use a cursor in the menus to actually navigate to – or navigate through the menus to begin the game. And so you had this upside-down mouse, basically, this trackball. And then you had the worst, most horrible, circular, squishy D-pad – and then you had the face buttons. The face buttons were actually pretty okay. Uh, how about those analog triggers on the back, though? <laughs> this is not a great-looking device. Like, ooh, it was a bad controller and uh, not a great game console. But they did do an interesting thing with the operating system. They, they did. So Apple has Mac OS, right? This is what this is going to be based on. And you would think, oh, well, you would just put Mac OS on the console, and it would just load the game from a CD-ROM. Right. Um, no, no. They wanted it to, to be able to update it as they went. And think about this as the mid-90s. You know, you're not – it's different today when you plug your Xbox in and it has eight hours of updates before you can play. <laughs> right? I mean, a lot of users didn't even have the internet. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely not. And so the idea was that the OS would be on the CD-ROM itself. Of course, CD-ROM is is read-only, so you'd have this read-only system folder. And if they had a software update, just CDs shipped out the door after a certain date would have the update. Not the worst workaround in terms of a pre-internet life, but... um, it was pretty slow because the you know, if you've ever booted a, a PC or a Mac off a CD, it takes a long time. And you're like they're trying to read it into memory, which there isn't much of. Like it just really slowed the whole thing down. Uh, and they didn't even take advantage of it. There weren't that many updates. In fact, the, the latest version that most Pippins can run is Mac OS 7.5.2. Some enthusiasts, because there's always enthusiasts, got them to like run a patch together version of Mac OS 8. But this was never really realized as uh, as Apple sort of intended. Right. And part of the problem was because building the game and including the OS on the same disk was so difficult because developers – and it's not like these were always huge studios. A lot of times they were smallish indie developers. They had to pippinize their CD-ROM disks, um, which was a process that used um, – it required a test pippin system and then the Mac software Toast Pro and then a Power Macintosh. All of this stuff became pretty pricey back in the day and made the pippin as a platform not hyper compelling to develop for especially because sales, as we learned, were not fantastic. <laughs> it just feels like a Rube Goldberg machine for development, yeah. right? It's like you need this this very particular machine with this very particular software. And I mean, we see this now, right? With iOS, you have to develop on a Mac. But the Mac wasn't super popular back then. Right? Some of these developers probably had, if they if they were trying to port a game to this, weren't experienced with Mac OS or the Mac. And so I would imagine that that hindered it as well. Yeah, the, the Pippin shipped with a built-in modem and then a basic web browser, which could be run from a CD-ROM in the device's later years. Um, but back to Bandai, because this is where the partnership is, is a little interesting. They began shipping consoles in 1996 to 1997 in a couple different versions. Because Bandai was a much more mm, – they had more brand cachet in Japan than Apple. Uh, they began selling the Pippin in Japan in March of 1996 um, under the Bandai Pippin Atmark brand name. Uh, later on, there was an upgraded version that was known as the Pippin At World. You have to say it. It's all capitalized. Pippin yeah. At World. <laughs> the the At World was sold in Japan under the Bandai name. And in the US, it did make it to kind of stateside and to Europe. That was kind of a weird hodgepodge. Some boxes are marked as or powered by Apple Computer because the you know Apple brand name had more weight here. Mm-hmm. Um, that was what was utilized. But the, the consoles are more or less the same. You had the At Mark. And the At World. Uh, you have one, right? I do. I have a black At World model. And it actually has a really interesting story. And I have – both of us have done videos on this. And I have those yeah. videos in the show notes. We're both younger and um, it's kind of strange. But uh, – <laughs> so I, I've got one. And mine came from a reader who had gotten one. He had worked in the tech press and got one to review. And oh, basically wow. it was new in box in his parents' house. And wow. they were moving or something, and they were like, you, you come get your stuff. And he didn't he didn't have room for it, didn't want it. And so I, in my video, I unbox it because it had everything that came in the box originally. I was really excited to do that. That's amazing. I was similarly lucky. I actually imported mine from Japan. So Stephen is uh, the rich guy that has the black model. It was given uh, to me. <laughs> 
Stephen has the rich listeners who provided the black model. Uh, I have the white model. They're they're much less expensive. They're definitely uh, in higher circulation because it just sold better in Japan. Yeah. Uh, but I also received mine with the box. All the accessories were were wrapped up. The controller looked basically brand new. And I actually, in classic me fashion, the first thing I did was was pull this machine apart. I turned it on to verify that it turned on, and then I went through and, and absolutely tore the whole thing apart. And the system was spotless. I mean, the fan was brand. I, I don't think it's ever been powered on before either. So we both kind of lucked out. They're they're not cheap, but they're not as expensive as you might think. Especially for as, as rare as they are. Well, we'll talk about how many they sold. Six. <laughs> <laughs> they are, honestly, it's pretty close. Beyond games, educational titles were marketed for the Pippin that had interactive graphics and sound. I think one of the discs mine came with is like a dictionary and you could like use the Applejack and like have words read to you and stuff. Uh, these applications uh, as, as a, or could be navigated using the controller, but there was also a keyboard and drawing pad accessory for sale. Hmm. And you could even use standard ADB Mac keyboard and mice if you had the right dongle, just like today. Yeah, some things never change, do they? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's kind of an interesting pitch because if we can analyze the Pimpin real quick, I think Apple's problem was that they tried to do too much. You had similar game consoles of the era that were less expensive and, frankly, though not as powerful computationally, much better gaming platforms. The games were better. The, they were more optimized. But Apple tried to tack on this approach of let's have kind of an everything computer that sits hooked up to our television. And rather than doing one thing really well, like single-use machines like a game console, it just did everything kind of poorly. And so what ends up happening is is they try – a lot <laughs> to to get Pippin to sell. But despite spending $93 million in marketing its Pippin, both Bandai and Apple, although mostly Bandai, um, reportedly sold only 42,000 units, which makes it Whoa. one of the worst selling game consoles of all time. Um, and, and discontinue the Pippin entirely in fall of 1997, despite Apple to have reportedly already been working on a second generation reference design. Um, interestingly, Bandai actually supported the consoles until the end of 2002. Wait, but what? <laughs> I, that's what it says. But what, what, what would they be doing? I don't know. I mean, my, my thought was, okay, maybe someone was like five years using them in education or I mean, yeah, yeah. I think what happened is, look, you only sold 42,000 of them. Most of them are collected by YouTubers and <laughs> Uh, it's like, oh, you can still, we still support this? And they just like took it off a menu on their website in 2002. They just have one guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I can't imagine it's like active support. But um, but go. they weren't the only company to get on board with this. So uh, Cats Media out of Norway was the second and last company to sign on for building a Pippin-based console. It's Pippin KMP2000 mm, shipped in name. March 1997 but get this, not to retail. Oh. You couldn't go buy one of these. Uh, in- instead, it got sold to companies and hotels as a set-top box for displaying information in lobbies and hotel rooms, shops, you know, digital signage type stuff. Sure. They were to play media off of CD-ROMs, but with that modem could also be connected uh, to a network. So you could, I guess, uh, have access to that that way. This didn't go well. I have never seen... One of these for sale. They are impossible to find. Hmm. Um, and it didn't go well for cats. They, uh, I got some bad news. They filed for bankruptcy in 1998, just a year later. Oh, no. 
And then speaking of 1998, uh, we have the return of Steve Jobs to Apple around the same era. What what did he think about the Pippin? <laughs> I can't imagine he liked it, but I'll tell you what, it, Pippin was gone real quick after he got back. <laughs> yeah, it went in the grave about the same time the Newton did. So rest in peace, Pippin. Let's take a break here. And uh, let me tell you about our first sponsor. How does that sound? Sounds amazing. This episode of Flashback is brought to you by Text Expander from our friends over at Smile. Save time typing and boost your productivity with Text Expander. It lets you instantly insert snippets of text as you type using a quick search or an abbreviation. If you type something more than a few times, you're wasting your time. Create a snippet and let Text Expander type it for you. You can make snippets on one computer and then use it across all of your devices. Your Macs, PCs, iOS devices, and more. If you want to learn more about Text Expander, they have a great educational program on their website with webinars every month. You can sign up for the Text Expander beginner, advanced, or team webinars to learn more about boosting your productivity. You can find all those over on their website at textexpander.com/webinar. I've used Text Expander since my Mac Genius days. We used to use it to make sure all of our notes when we were entering repairs were all uniform across the whole team. That was a thousand years ago, and it is still totally part of how I use my computers. Without Text Expander, I really feel stuck. And that that bit about if you type something more than a few times, you know, if I look at my Text Expander collection, I've got things that have been in here for 10 years, and I've got things that I added last week because it's always changing and becoming more useful to me. Text Expander is available for Mac OS, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. And flashback listeners will get 20% off their first year. Just go to textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander. It will really boost your productivity. Go check it out. Textexpander.com slash podcast. Our thanks to Text Expander for the support of this show and Relay FM. Thanks, Text Expander. Hey, Steven, uh, quick question for you. Hey, Quinn. Have you ever heard of Nintendo? Um, yeah, they're the one with Sonic, right? Is that, is that right? I think it's worthwhile to give an extremely brief history on Nintendo <laughs> to highlight what a disaster this next thing we're going to talk about was. Okay. The Nintendo Virtual Boy. I don't want to spoil it. But Nintendo started as a Japanese playing card manufacturer in 1889 and over the following decades gained extreme popularity. Uh, through the 1950s to 1970s, however, they attempted a bunch of businesses that just, quite frankly, failed. Some really crazy stuff. Uh, they started a taxi company. A, get this, a love hotel chain that you could rent by the hour. Wait, wait. Yep. What? Yep. Oh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nintendo. Yep. Uh, they had a TV network and a food company that made instant rice. I, I mean, they were just kind of like a- out of their wits. They were trying everything they could think of. And all of these business ventures failed, and Nintendo stock plummeted until there was a guy, um, Yukoi Gunpei. I don't know if I said that right, but... Sounded good. Thank you. He was a maintenance engineer that worked at Nintendo and manned the playing card machines, which was really the only business that was working out for them, and was discovered by the CEO of Nintendo to have made this weird little extendable arm toy, which he was using in the factory to kind of accelerate production to reach stuff from far away. And uh, it was discovered by... The CEO, and he was impressed by it, and he thought, you know, this could make a really good toy. 
And so the toy was rushed to production to make it to the holiday year. And long story short, Nintendo became a toy company and then subsequently the video game company that we know today. And, and the rest is history. And, and it is, you, we cannot understate the success that Nintendo has had in the gaming industry. They have sold 754 million game consoles since 1997. Whoa. That's more than Sony, Microsoft, and Sega combined. Jeez. So Nintendo has been massively successful. They're doing okay. Yeah. I, I mean, you mentioned that you own a Switch. The Switch is selling extraordinarily well, especially due to COVID-19 right now. Most stores are completely sold out. <laughs> now, they have had some missteps here and there. Uh, Nintendo fans know that Wii U was the console the console that replaced the Switch was the worst selling Nintendo platform at just 13.5 million sales over its six year lifespan. That's not so, great. <laughs> no, Switch is already at like almost 50 million in what two three years. So pretty impressive. But guess what, Stephen? The Wii U was not actually Nintendo's worst selling Nintendo platform. Was it the Commodore? It was <laughs> not. <laughs> That actually sold very well, and it wasn't made by Nintendo. <laughs> I can feel your blood pressure from here. <laughs> the real worst-selling console was Virtual Boy, a portable VR headset platform released in 1995 that sold more than 17 times fewer units than Wii U, the next worst-selling Nintendo console. And you may think 1995 and VR don't go in the same sentence, but we're gonna we're gonna get to that. <laughs> well, I mean, they don't, but. <laughs> They don't. Uh, the story of Virtual Boy begins not in Japan, but in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Ten years before Virtual Boy saw the light of day in 1985, an engineer named Alan Becker was excited about the prospect of high-resolution head-mounted displays that could take the edge off being on a long drive or jammed in an uncomfortable airline seat. It's not a bad idea, right? The problem was is that in 1995... The tech just didn't exist to make this happen, like a head-mounted display. Uh, there were a couple options. One was CRTs, which frankly consumed way too much power and generated way too much heat to be used in kind of a, a pair of goggle-mounted virtual reality headsets. And then you had LCDs, which were too low resolution and very, very expensive because the tech was new. Um, so really, Alan Becker's sitting around thinking, well, what do we do to make this thing happen? And he really only sees LEDs as as a viable option because they're cheap, they're inexpensive, and they're reliable. But but how could he create a, a usable portable display out of just a bunch of LEDs? Uh, the answer quickly became SLA, or a scanned linear array, which he invented and subsequently formed the company Reflection Technology. Fast Company, I think, does a pretty good job at explaining how this technology worked. Um, and then once we read it, we'll kind of digest it because it is a little confusing. So Becker conceived of a display that consisted of a single line array of LEDs. She just had one strip of LEDs that could optically print a persistent image onto a person's retina by changing the pattern of lights that lit up while sweeping across a given area. But instead of moving the LEDs themselves, because again, you have this cost problem, and you have to fit a pretty high density of pixels into what's presumably a very small uh, kind of VR headset. Yeah, it's got to go in your face. <laughs> right. He decided to move a reflection of the LEDs. Uh, how do you do this? Well, with a mirror. So they had a mirror that oscillated back and forth 50 times per second, and the LEDs would fire at different rates when the uh, mirror was angled to fake your eyes into thinking that you're seeing a much larger image 
than you really are. And due to the nature of LEDs, it could present a very bright, very sharp image at a high resolution for a potentially low price if it were to be mass produced. It's a, a, kind of a wild technology. Yeah, I've read this a couple of times and I think I'm starting to get my head around it. But while I'm sure about today's standards, it's hysterically bad. If you think <laughs> about the problem set in, in the you know, 80s and 90s, it's pretty good probably. So the tech worked and reflection technology, uh, the company name is pretty solid, by the way. Yeah, right? Because mirrors? <laughs> yeah. The problem was that they didn't have a customer, right? <laughs> It's a real startup problem. Yeah. Everyone knew it was cool and it was an award winner at the 1988 Comdex show in Las Vegas, which is kind of like, I guess it's CES's predecessor. Yeah. God, CES shows up so many times when we talk about these products. I know. It really does. And uh, many large companies like Hughes Aircraft and a handful of computer makers, makers purchased development kits, but nobody could really find a practical use case for it. Yeah, the, the tech was interesting and it actually proved pretty reliable, uh, but the limited refresh rate and, and seemingly limited application, uh, especially, and this was the biggest problem, it was a, it was a monochrome display, right? It was, it was one color and that's red. It could have theoretically been any color, but red LEDs were by far the cheapest and, and most reliable. Um, and, and so that was one major limitation. So in 1990, this is five years after they've revealed the tech, people are shopping it out. They seem interested, but nobody's really picking it up. They take matters into their own hands and they create a video game demo of this stereoscopic 3D headset powered by an IBM PC that ran a tank simulation game and had head-based motion tracking. Um, it was apparently a lot of fun, unlike anything that they had seen before. And they were really excited about the technology. Uh, at this point, they thought to have found a use case for the technology after all. But uh, upon shopping around to Mattel and Hasbro and Sega, all of them rejected the idea because of either cost, the single red color LED tech we mentioned earlier, or, and this is important, uh, motion sickness. But then Reflection finally found their match in, are you ready for this? Yukoi Gunpei. Remember him? Our old friend. Yeah, remember him, the guy at Nintendo? The the maintenance engineer? Well, he actually ended up being a pretty big deal at Nintendo, was responsible for the uh, Mr. Game & Watch and the Game Boy, ever heard of Game Boy? And he was really excited about this technology, about Reflection Technologies idea. And as director of Nintendo's R&D One division, he decided to license the SLA technology in an attempt to be different and innovate in the gaming industry, which he had perceived to have been a little bit stale by the mid-90s. Nintendo spent the next four years developing the project under the codename VR32. VR, of course, because it retained the stereoscopic 3D design demoed by reflection, and 32 because it was a 32-bit system, Nintendo's first. Hmm. Nintendo retained uh, RTI's choice of red LEDs because it was the cheapest, and, and, and unlike backlit LCDs, which had come down in price by the time they were developing this, uh, still had issues, and where SLA was advantageous is that it could achieve perfect blackness in order to create a greater sense of depth. And uh, that's actually a discussion we still have today. Dynamic range and blackness levels are very much a thing in VR headsets being produced today. Most of them had been OLED and the new Valve Index that runs at 144 hertz. It's this constant battle between, oh, do we choose a superior display technology or do we choose one that can refresh faster? Um, the Valve Index went with uh, LCDs. 
the disadvantages over OLED is that you can see backlight um, bleed. And so playing in my VR headset, playing the new Half-Life Alex, there's a lot of dark scenes and they're kind of gray. Hmm. They don't look as good as an OLED display. And um, this headset, Virtual Boy, similarly had very, very rich blacks. I guess it's a, I guess you'll take an LCD over all red pixels, though. <laughs> we have made yeah, improvements. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Things have gotten better. <laughs> uh, there's another thing about that tank demo that reflection technology engineers had created. And it was that it integrated head tracking, which Nintendo loved. Nintendo still loves body tracking, right? The, the Wii was totally built around it. Yep. And it's one of the reasons that Virtual Boy looks like a pair of head-mounted goggles, because that was the original plan. Unfortunately, there were a few problems with this. Nintendo engineers were concerned about placing the low-wattage 32-bit RISC processor that had been purchased from NEC so close to the user's heads because of high radio emission. Back in the <laughs> 90s, it was unclear the research really hadn't been done concerning the brain and its response to EMF radiation. Nintendo ended up covering the internal CPU with a heavy metal plate to avoid this, but then it was far too heavy to actually put on your head. So you put a plate in it to make it safe, but then you break your neck trying to lift it. All right. To make matters even worse, the 50 hertz equivalent refresh rate display um, and the primitive motion sensors present on the headset just made it a prime candidate for extreme motion sickness. Uh, modern VR headsets, generally it's recommended that you don't want to run anything lower than about 80, 90 hertz. The Oculus Quest is 72 hertz and has proved to be Okay, pretty good. It's 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 more difficult to get motion sickness on a higher refresh uh, VR display like the 144 hertz Valve Index, but then you have the other issue of of how well does the headset and your kind of tracked controllers uh, well track in in motion. And sure. if you see if like you know your brain's not stupid. If it sees in VR your arms are moving and they're not. <laughs> Going to freak out. <laughs> that, that's a nauseating experience. And so just the sensors back in the 90s for this headset were not very good. And there was reportedly a lot of delay in between when you would move your head and when the screen would actually move, which was, yeah, it's it's not a good feeling. It made your uh, stomach pretty sick. If that wasn't enough, Nintendo was also worried about legal implications. Say that you have a kid playing this game and they accidentally run into a bookcase or fall down the stairs. Nintendo wouldn't, didn't have to deal with that. Can't blame them. Mm -mm. In the end, Virtual Boy ditched the head tracking and shipped with a metal kickstand that allowed the user to play the device on a table. And if you look at this design, you look go look at a Virtual Boy. It clearly looks like this was not their original design. I mean, you have these really sleek looking red goggles that look futuristic, and then it's just plopped on this weird looking tripod. Not quite as magical. It reminds me of when you go to the eye doctor and like you're on a stool and you have to like lean your head into the machine. So like, <laughs> you know, the the, per, the doctor like blasts air in your eye, and then you scream and jump off the back of it. You know that thing? Yep. That's that, exactly what it's like. Yeah. It's like you made this whole thing to be portable. And you just stuck it on a stand. You have a bunch of people like hunched over a table. Took all the fun out of it. Right. Even with these issues, Nintendo was confident. They plowed ahead and ended up building a Chinese factory exclusively to produce the headsets. I mean, they just went into it. In December of 1994, six months before release, so they missed Holiday 94. They're going to come out in the summer of 95. Nintendo gave a very confident projection of sales in Japan, 3 million hardware sales and 14 million software sales by March of 1996. So they thought we're going to sell 3 million of them and those people are all going to buy three to four game titles each. 
Yeah, that's extremely optimistic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even in, in modern day gaming, the attach rate is not thought to be that good in, in year one. The reception of the headset upon launch was, uh, it was mixed. The technology was cool, no doubt, but many people had reported discomfort while playing even after a short durations to the point where Nintendo started inserting an option when you would begin the game to take mandatory pauses every 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> to make to make matters worse, the $180 price tag, which is equivalent to about $300 in today's money, was a hard price to swallow, especially considering the really powerful competition in the 32-bit kind of game console race. Uh, Sure, it was less expensive than a home console, but it was considerably more money than a Game Boy and had much less application than a home game console. Uh, Furthermore, the system only shipped with four titles at launch, and first-party Nintendo titles were really, really scarce. That's rough. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't good. Uh, Marketing attempts, including a blockbuster rental program. Uh, That's a real sign of the times. Uh, so you can rent one from Blockbuster, rent games, television ads. This all attempted to sell more units, but it, it didn't work out. The console was viewed by many as antisocial. You know, if you have a console looked at a TV, you and your buddies can play together. But this, it's like you're around a dining room table all s- staring into these red headsets. Um, it was criticized by child development and eye research organizations as potentially harmful. And then TechWeb, this magazine, cited a doctor as stating the headset could cause sickness, flashbacks. Hey, that's the name of the show. (laughs) It did cause a flashback. It did. did. This may be overblown, (laughs) but potentially even permanent brain damage. Not so sure about that last one. It's been, uh, what, 20 years since this thing has come out? There's been uh, no reports of that. But uh, yeah, regardless, not great public perception. More titles were eventually announced by Nintendo, but the games never released. (laughs) And the last game published for Virtual Boy was 3D Tetris, which made it to shelves in uh, March of 1996, which was less than nine months after the console had originally hit stores. Oh, Yeah, it's bad. And and though a press statement was never released, Nintendo reportedly shuttered the factory just five months after the console's launch and discontinued the device in late 1995 in Japan and then in early 1996 in North America. Not good. So that that three million units, they didn't didn't hit that? (laughs) Not even close. There were only uh, 20 games ever released and that three million projection, well, they were shy by, uh, well, they they sold 770,000. You try to do math again live on the show. I heard you start, and then I heard you stop. Uh, two, what is two point two two point two seven million? Sure, sure. Uh, the the problem even even more was that most of these sales had come after Nintendo had already discontinued the system because they began blowing out inventory for as little as seventy nine dollars, which was a lot less. Um, it's estimated that actual sales while the thing was alive was fewer than half a million. That's what we call pulling an HP touchpad. Really bad. <laughs> you make you most of your sales are after it's discontinued. I, I know Nintendo is a as co- a company that likes nostalgia, right? That they do. O- old characters come back all the time. Is there mm-hmm. any like Easter eggs today? You know, pointing back to the Virtual Boy, or have they just yeah. put it in the ground? No, actually. Very recently in Luigi's Mansion 3. I feel like I heard Mike or Federico talking about it. I don't know. But this is an amazing game. And it's a lot of fun. But when you pause the game, it brings up this map where you can kind of see where you are in the hotel and then also communicate with Professor Gad, who's kind of in charge of the game. And you do it when you pause the menu. This device called a virtual boo 
comes up. Get it? Virtual boo because Luigi's Mansion. Spooky. <laughs> boo. Yeah, virtual boo. That stylized just like the original with the red scanned lines and all. Uh, so they have definitely not forgotten. And the legend of the virtual boy lives on. That's good. Yeah. If you got to die young, you should at least be remembered in an Easter egg. <laughs> there you go. That's what I say. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we have one more console this week. Uh, something a little more modern. And this is the Ouya. Like many super successful hardware products, it was launched on Kickstarter. I think that's the first time that sentence has ever been uttered. Yeah. <laughs> mm. uh, it did actually ship, though, unlike uh, many other Kickstarter hardware projects. Uh, it shipped in 2013, only 13 months after the Kickstarter page went up, which is actually impressive. Like if you've backed hardware, you know how, how that can go sometimes. If you get it at all. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of stuff just disappears. Right. The the crowdfunding campaign went very well. The initial goal of nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars was reached within eight hours. At the end, it had raised eight point six million dollars in total, with over sixty three thousand backers. As of this recording, that is still the tenth largest campaign in Kickstarter history. Wow, that's impressive. Do you remember the campaign? I do. I remember, uh, you know, people being excited about it, but also kind of wondering what was happening. The biggest campaign on Kickstarter, the most successful one, is a possible future episode of Flashback. If you want us to talk about the Pebble, remember Pebble, Stephen? Oh, I I backed it and I had one, buddy. Ooh, did you love it as much as everyone else did? Mm. All right, so Stephen's a hater. I've never owned a Pebble, but I promise you, if you leave us a review in Apple Podcasts and send us a screenshot of it on Twitter, the show is at underscore flashback FM, we will put the Pebble in the docket and talk about it in the future because it deserves to be known about. It, it was fine for its time. Uh, send all of the hate email to Stephen, please. I do nothing but endorse the Pebble and its existence. You can find me on Twitter at Casey Liss. <laughs> okay, tell me about this thing. Okay, so Ouya. It was a 2.95-inch cube. It was really tiny little kind of metallic-y looking box that attached to a television via HDMI. Uh, on the back, it had a couple of USB ports, an Ethernet port, and then it used an external power supply because the cube was so tiny. It had one gig of memory, uh, eight gigs of storage, and it could be, if you wanted to, expanded externally via USB. But where things were really important was the heart of the device, the 1.7 gigahertz ARM processor. Ooh, sounds crazy. <laughs> uh, we'll leave a link in the show notes to iFixit's teardown. And boy, you know, this thing is, it's real tiny. It's very adorable. There's nothing to it. It is just a board and a fan. It is basically... A smartphone without any of the smartphone things that you would want. No cameras, no screen, no battery, just a smartphone board and a little fan jammed in this tiny little cube. It's actually kind of what it was. You're not too far off. In fact, it ran Android 4.1 Jelly Bean with a custom interface. I wonder if the custom interface was as good as Samsung TouchWiz. <laughs> it made bloop noises every time you touched the button. <laughs> I still have nightmares about TouchWiz. The The promise of the Ouya was a good one in principle, that it would be free from the shackles of the big players like Microsoft and Sony and Nintendo. And if you frame this 
in the year that it was presented, 2013, it's actually kind of a not a bad pitch because PC indie titles have been popular for years now, for probably a decade. But only semi-recently with the latest generation consoles have we seen a lot of really good kind of single developer or very small indie titles make their way to main game platforms. And that was the promise of Ouya that indie developers would be able to rush in and experience a newfound freedom being able to publish their games directly to their customers. Uh, To pull off this vision, the team behind Ouya had a lot of work to do. And uh, oh, wow, what a team it was. Yeah, the CEO was Julie Ehrman, who, if you like look at her history, she gets things done. Uh, yeah. she's, she's been at like 17 companies in the last 25 years, mostly upper level management. Yeah. So she was the publisher of, uh, the publishing manager of Vivendi games, which later got incorporated into Blizzard, which later became Activision Blizzard. Anyway, she was there during their he- uh, heyday and was allegedly involved in the release of massively successful games during her tenure, such as Fear, The Simpsons Hit and Run, which still to this day remains one of my favorite games of all time, and this small game called World of Warcraft, which was pretty popular in the mid-2000s. I've heard of that. You catch Pokemon in it. Years later, uh, she also acted as the VP and GM of digital distribution for IGN's Direct2Drive and FilePlanet platforms, which experience relative popularity. So, you know, she seemed qualified. Yeah, I mean, it's a very impressive resume. And if you go back and watch the Kickstarter campaign video, we have the page in the show notes. You're just fired up, right? Like, like yeah, like you got this. This is a great idea. Like you're cheering for them to succeed. And what's cool is that it was going to be affordable for everyone. It ended up selling for 99 bucks, And it was an open platform, like you said. Anybody could create games. If you wanted to tinker with the hardware, you just unscrewed the bottom of it and could play with it. It was it was really cool. And they were doing all of this, but also having the big publishers on board. They're going to carry this thing in retail stores. It really seemed like the best of both worlds. They also had a couple of other things that were kind of unique force. Uh, first, they allowed you to play a free trial of any game on the Ouya before purchasing it. It was all good stuff. Yeah. But once the Kickstarter ends, people become increasingly more skeptical about Ouya as things seem to be, even though things seem to be on track for a somewhat timely release. Why? Uh, Well, for reasons like her disastrous South by Southwest interview with Joshua Topolsky, who was at the time with The Verge. Listen to this painfully hilarious clip. Minority media is building a game that actually leverages, they, they built Papa and Yo, um, that actually leverages the buttons and the touchpad, right? Because our controller has a touchpad. You're not going to find that somewhere else. Um, and the reality well, the is... New, the new PlayStation 4 controller has a touchpad, doesn't it? That's true. They could build it for that. So... But they're building it for me. That's what I know. Despite that interview, though, she was on top of things. She had convinced a bunch of really smart people to raise money for this company. An additional 15 million dollars in funding, including investors like NVIDIA. They use this money to hire good, right people. They brought in industry experts like Bean Gordon, who was the first and only marketing employee at this little startup in the 80s called Electronic Arts. You know, they went and did some stuff. Never heard of him. He was eventually the CCO of EA in 1998 and really helped grow it into the massive publisher we know it as today. I mean, real industry expertise on this team. Right. They also worked with the right people. A lump sum was also presumed to be involved in announcing the development of the first Ouya exclusive title. 
And when you talk about kind of exclusive titles on, on game platforms, those are necessary. This game called Human Element was developed by Robotaki, which you probably haven't heard of because it never really ended up being a thing. But the company was started by Robert uh, Bowling, who was the creative strategist for the massively successful Call of Duty franchise at Infinity Ward and Activision through Modern Warfare 3. So really good uh, game developers, really successful people seem to be all on the Ouya train. And we don't know if it was because Ouya had a bunch of money or because people actually believed in the platform, but they seemed ready to rumble. Even after all this funding, though, the console and platform kind of struggled out of the gate. They shipped to their Kickstarter backers first and then went on sale to the public a few weeks later for $99. But there was a lot of drama behind this because it had been discovered that in certain instances, some retail stores had received their retail units before the Kickstarter backers. Oh, no. Which you don't want to do. And then to make matters worse, the Kickstarter backers had like a quote unquote limited or special edition run, mm -hmm. but mostly they were the prototypes that had some fit and finish issues. So the Kickstarter backers reported problems with like the buttons sticking down or the analog sticks having too much recoil, bunch of quality control problems that weren't present in the retail units, which uh, were marginally more money than what the Kickstarter backers had spent, what, a year and a half prior? Not good. That's not a good look. No. Users also complained about the lack of options and quality when it came to games. Uh, the, the Verge's review in April 2013 states that there were only about 100 titles for the console. And most of those were like alpha or betas. They weren't really finished, ready for gameplay. Even a few months later, not much had changed. And it started coming out that developers weren't making that much on their titles. Yeah, to help combat this, Ouya created the Free the Games Fund, or so they called it, in July 2013. And the goal of this was a, well, it was a $1 million fund who was designed to kind of help bankroll the development of indie games for the platform. Uh, and the company pledged to match any Kickstarter campaign if a minimum target of $50,000 was reached, as long as the creators would launch the game as a six-month Ouya exclusive. Not a bad idea, especially because in 2013, this was really when Kickstarter was going gangbusters and tons of games and other services and products were getting funded. Uh, unfortunately, this fell victim to fraud. There were reports of campaigns basically faking donations, you know, new accounts donating $20,000, that sort of thing. And even one game creator was accused of using a stolen identity to launch his page. <laughs> Whoops. Yep. Not, not a great way to spend your fund. No. So you have this problem, right? There's not really any good games on your platform. The ones that exist aren't selling well. And then you can't get new games to come to the platform because of various reasons like this Kickstarter fraud shenanigans. Before long, it was pretty apparent that Ouya was in trouble. Uh, hardware sales, because there were no games, were exceptionally poor. And they were seemingly unable to even get decent developers to make and optimize their games through their platform that had already been on Android. So they were like, look, take the games you already have, optimize for touch, and just integrate controller support. They couldn't even really do that. To make matters worse, smartphones, I mean, you go back to 2013, this is when smartphones were getting extremely good, like extreme improvements year over year. Mm -hmm. And so this Ouya hardware just immediately aged really quickly and looked pretty weak compared to even decent tablets of, of a year or two later. And it was let down by the software too. It's running Android 4.1 with this custom skin, but basically the second you stepped out of the custom skin, like if you needed some sort of setting or something, it was like a bad Android experience because Android <laughs> yeah. wasn't ready for TV at the time. And it just, it, it really, I think, felt unfinished in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah, so they were, they were in trouble. They sort of limped along for a couple of years 
But in July of 2015, Razer, yes, the PC gaming company that I am intimately familiar with, they've they have, they're the one with the LEDs, right? They got the LEDs. Well, yeah, I mean everyone has LEDs now, but they're the ones with the snake logos. Got it. They actually make Stephen, if you're interested. They're one of the few laptop manufacturers that makes laptops that look as good as MacBook products. They're all aluminum and they're anodized. They're really beautiful computers. But then, yeah, they have LEDs and, um, well, their logo is a bunch of snakes tied together. So. And green USB ports. I, I, I'm familiar with Razer. I'm just joking. Oh, okay, okay. Well, you know. So anyways, they, they bought undisclosed amount, which is always interesting, right? It's like, that's either way higher or way lower than I think it is when it's undisclosed. Probably like 30 bucks. Yeah. And the argument was that Ouya's software assets and technical teams uh, were of value to Razer. At the time, they had recently released Forge TV, which was another Android gaming box, very similar, but newer and, and more polished than the, the Ouya platform. So they thought, okay, we'll take this team and we'll further what, what we're already doing. Yeah, that uh, that didn't work. Um, they ended up shuttering uh, both the Ouya and Forge TV platforms in June of 2019. And this is very hilarious. We'll leave the link in the show notes because it just cracks me up. You go to this website and it says, this website will be shut down by June 2019. Uh, it's, what, April 2020? And it's still up online. <laughs> <laughs> Got to so, let the domain in, yeah, you know? Right. They didn't shut it down, but um, eventually that page will no longer be available. So seize the day. The only Android TV box that still exists. And I mean, if you look at the time, this was like a thing that people were really excited about. Uh, but the whole prospect of smart TVs, uh, really the only one that exists still is the NVIDIA Shield TV, which is hardly popular, but at least it allows you to play console quality games by either streaming them from your gaming PC on your local network or by using um, NVIDIA GeForce Now, which allows you to stream games over the internet, similar to Google Stadia and OnLive and a bunch of other kind of streaming services. I think that was Ouya's biggest downside, other than, well, the hardware wasn't great and uh, the games weren't great. But it just immediately became apparent that nobody really wanted to play smartphone games on their TV. That's why the market wasn't really there. And, well, the market's spoken. Uh, fun factoid, though. I want to get back to Nintendo for a second because I could talk about Nintendo all day. In 2012, there was this device release called the Wii Mini. Have you ever heard of this? I have not. Basically, nobody has heard of the Wii Mini. It, the reason it's weird is just a month uh, before the launch of the Wii Mini, the Wii U had been released, which was, you know, Nintendo's next generation gaming console. And we already talked about how that had its own big list of failures. But the $99 Wii Mini was <laughs> released alongside Wii U, basically, even though it was a last generation console. It forewent uh, a lot of the features that had been expected in the Nintendo Wii of the time. Um, there was no uh, Wi-Fi connection, for example. It ditched the slot-loading CD and DVD drive in favor of a kind of a top-loading old-school one. Um, it didn't have a very good sensor bar. Like, they just really cheaped out on this hardware. But the reason it was interesting was because it was $99, and it had access to Nintendo's huge back catalog of the Wii, which was one of the most successful um, home platform gaming console of all time. Um, it sold really poorly, was only launched in Canada initially, and then kind of made its way over to other states um, or to these states and the rest of the world. But the reason it was launched or rumored to have been launched was to compete with the Ouya and other 
kind of early Android TV set-top boxes because the thought was, oh, this $90 to $150 box thing is going to be a huge market. People want to watch Netflix. They want to stream video, but they also want to be able to play games. And that was Nintendo's goal. Uh, they failed, though. It it sold horribly. <laughs> I found an Austin Evans video one. from 2013 that I am 100% putting in the show notes about the Wii Mini. <laughs> yeah, it's a crazy device. He's going to kill me. So what can we learn? <sighs> I don't know. What can we learn, Stephen? I kind of leave this the same place I left the EV1. Like, it's really hard to come into a market with giants. Yeah. And even if you have an idea that seems good, like hey, we're going to have VR in the 90s or we're going to have, I don't have anything good to say about the Pippin. Uh, if we have, you know, <laughs> this a, these Android games on your on your TV and you can just have independent developers, like those ideas had merit, but it just didn't pan out when you're competing against multi-billion dollar corporations. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, I mean, hardware is important, but really what matters is the software and, and look no further than the Switch. I mean, the Nintendo Switch, by every measure, is not a powerful device. It's running an NVIDIA Tegra processor that was actually still present in the NVIDIA Shield TV. It's it's not even the most modern chip. It's, by modern standards, a pretty outdated piece of hardware. But Nintendo is Nintendo. <laughs> the operating system is extremely well optimized, and the software and the titles and the games available are amazing. And so that's what's made it such the success that it is. And uh, it's interesting, though, because I, th I think that's a similar problem to what, I mean, we talk about Virtual Boy. I think software is a similar problem to modern VR and even augmented reality that Apple's really trying to push in our faces. Um, have you tried a VR headset before, like a dedicated one? I have uh, a couple of times. Uh, I've tried the Oculus and the Vive, and it's it's fine. I mean, again, not being like a... a a big gamer, a lot of it's lost on me. I can tell you, though, when I tried the Oculus, I tried it at Oculus probably mm -hmm. three years ago when I was out of Facebook and on a on a trip. And the the weird, I mean, you know, it was kind of a demo. And what was really interesting to me is we had, this was before they had released their touch controllers. So we were using mm -hmm. like prototype kind of unreleased hardware. And I remember, you know, I could see my hands in VR. And I remember when the woman who was doing the demo took them off my hands. I was still wearing the headset and my brain thought my hands had been cut off. Like <laughs> for about three seconds, I freaked out. I was like, this is really strange, but yeah, it's fine. Like, you know, it's, it's interesting, but uh, I don't, I'm not interested in, in owning any of that myself at this point. Yeah. It's interesting because I'm someone who's really passionate about virtual reality. I don't care about augmented reality as much yet, but I think that it's because the tech isn't there yet. I think it's where VR was probably mm, 10 years ago now. Um, modern VR headsets are remarkable. I mean, you put on the Valve Index and you can see your fingers tracked individually in, in virtual reality. And it had the same issue that Nintendo and Ouya and the Pippin had where the software just wasn't there yet. And it's this difficult problem because if your platform doesn't seem to have viability, Nobody's going to make software for it. But if nobody makes software for it, then nobody buys the hardware. And so it's the cyclical kind of issue where devices just don't sell. And the Valve Index, I've owned four VR headsets now to date. And every one is a, a massive leap in technology. I mean, from the Rift and the, the Vive that you've tried, the VR technology has improved exponentially. Um, and I think only recently have I played a title where I thought, 
holy crap, this is actually maybe the future. This is more than just a fun little 10 minute demo with friends. This is, this can be your thing. Hmm. And that was Half-Life Alex, which was just released a, a few weeks ago by Valve. And, and Valve is known for making games very rarely, but when they do, they're completely unique and, and very different and very well received. And, and Half-Life Alex is, is no different. It's, it's one of the few moments I've had, or one of the moments in the last, I don't know, many, many years where I've, I've played something or tried something and thought, oh my goodness, this is going to change everything. But that's just one small portion, right? There's so much that they have to handle. I mean, VR is still expensive. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was playing it on a $2,000 gaming PC with a $1,000 headset. Uh, that's not accessible to most people, even though hardware is coming down market. I mean, the $400 Oculus Quest is actually really awesome for what it is. But but cost is difficult. And then the other thing that I think Apple is going to have a real tricky time with, assuming they're getting into VR, which I think we both believe they are, right? The, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a lot of evidence there that AR and potentially VR, like where they're headed big time. Yeah. It's just hard to advertise. How do you show people what these experiences are like yeah. without showing them in the medium that they're going to be experienced in? It's really, it's impossible, quite frankly. I think it's the same thing that Nintendo had with the the Virtual Boy. It was probably really cool. And I mean, there's videos that we'll leave in the show notes, like uh, Linus Tech Tips did a video. And they're talking about how incredible it feels and and how surprisingly good it is for technology that's almost 30 years old. But you as the viewer, even today watching that, are like, hmm, it just looks like a red screen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a, it's a tricky problem. I guess, I guess what we're trying to say is that all technology sucks. <laughs> Until it's good. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> well, with that uh, stunning wisdom, I'd say we wrap up. Yeah. They probably stopped listening hours ago, so it's not a problem. <laughs> if you want to find show notes this week, they're in your podcast app of choice or they're on the web, relay.fm slash flashback slash five. While you're there, you can uh, send us feedback, follow up or questions via email. Remember to send us a screenshot of your Apple podcast review uh, and that will uh, bump the pebble up the list. I think that'd be really fun to get into. It, if you uh, If you want to find us, on Twitter. You can do that. You can find me there as ISMH and you can find my work over at 512pixels.net. Quinn, what about you? You can find me on all the social networks at SnazzyQ and on YouTube at youtube.com slash snazzy. I'd like to thank our sponsor this week, Text Expander from Smile. And until next time, say goodbye. See you later. Adios. Thanks for watching.